we first meet him, see him, as they saw him, we find ourselves in the archives of the Paris police as Annie Cohen Solal goes in search of the police records of an alien suspect, a foreigner under active police surveillance in the 1900s. She tells us, among all these documents, I did not spot a single crime, apart from that of his not being French. On some of these papers, you see the word Spanish stamped in capital letters, signaling the suspect's difference, his exclusion, his stigma. Picasso's mugshot would, of course, then represent the way they saw him, the police, the authorities. But it is as if Picasso himself rises before her, calling her to take on a critical quest to help all of us come to understand, to see him in a fresh and powerful way, to understand even more deeply than we do how he saw in spite of the way he was seen. Professor Cohen Solal tells us, A few days after my discovery of the stigma attached to Picasso in the police archives, a new exhibition opened at the Musée du Quai Branly, Picasso Primitif, Picasso Primitive. I was immediately struck by the imposing black and white poster facing the River Seine, showing two huge faces, each nine feet high, staring calmly at the people of Paris, the triumphant 60-year-old artist, and beside him, an African mask. What you see is their all-powerful eyes, Picasso's black pupils and the empty sockets of the mask. What are they looking at? The visitors swarming in the gardens of the museum? The Seine, once celebrated by Picasso's friend, the poet Apollinaire, still flowing implacably before them? Or what if it were something else? What if Picasso, photographed at the height of his fame, were gazing triumphantly toward the Pont de la Ma, calmly and simply indicating the precise place where, in October 1900, during his first ever trip to Paris, at 18 years old, Unable to speak a word of French, he rushed to the Spanish section of the Grand Palais at the Exhibition Universelle, where, what an honor for someone so young, one of his paintings was being shown. In the spring of 2017, I see in this poster of Picasso at the Musée du Quai Bonly a staggering clash between the image of the alien suspect file locked away in the police archives and that of the legendary artist celebrated all over the world. And she is compelled to ask, what if I followed the gaze of that black and white poster by the Seine? What if I obeyed the artist's calm injunction to slip behind the scenes of his life in France almost 120 years after it began? That life has been buried under layers and layers of words, so that it seems to have vanished from sight. How can we retrace, in all its vicissitudes, the odyssey of the virtuoso arriving in Paris? Today the ghosts of Picasso are locked away in every corner of the city, in cardboard boxes full of papers, which I will open 
to reveal a trajectory even more complex and arduous than it first appears. I will set out upon a series of expeditions around Paris, where the archives are kept, breathlessly pursuing this treasure hunt, diligently following the triumphant gaze of Picasso as he looks back from the peak of his glory years into the hidden recesses of his past. Words of Annie Cohen-Salal from her new study titled Picasso the Foreigner. And notice, she uses the word gaze here. How many times? A significant choice, for in our day, the word gaze reverberates in larger social, political, and cultural ways, having to do with power, dominance. Who defines a person's identity? There are many levels here. So, we will travel the streets of Paris and the roads and byways of the south of France with Cohen Solal on her quest, as she reveals to us just what constituted Picasso's way of seeing, seeing himself, the world, art, tradition, and his way of living and ethical choices that followed directly. And the enormous irony that the way the entrenched forces in France saw and defined Picasso as foreigner becomes a key, perhaps the key, to the monumental contributions Picasso made to the country and culture that treated him unjustly, repressively, wrongfully, as alien outsider, as Picasso the foreigner. Annie Cohen Salal is a writer and social historian, a distinguished professor at Bocconi University in Milan. She has taught in Berlin, Jerusalem, New York, and Paris, and served as the cultural counselor to the French embassy in the United States. Her books include biographies of Jean-Paul Sartre, Leo Castelli, and Mark Rothko, all of which have been widely translated. Picasso the Foreigner was awarded the 2021 Prix Femina Essay. Annie Cohen Solal returned to the University of Scranton at the start of her book tour for Picasso the Foreigner that coincides with the 50th anniversary of Picasso's death on April 8, 1973. She spoke at the Schemmel Forum, where she has appeared a number of times, invited by Sandra Myers, who has been Senior Fellow for International Civic and Cultural Projects and Director of the Schemmel Forum at the University for many years. Annie Cohen-Solal paid a visit to the WVIA studios to talk with us about Picasso the Foreigner as the art world marks this notable anniversary. Was Picasso always in your heart, in your way? Picasso was not, actually. Picasso was a giant, but you could tell me that Sartre was also a giant, whom I started with my whole career. Why then did I focus on Picasso? Because in France... There's a museum called Museum of Immigration, which opened in 2015 uh, with the President of the Republic giving the official inauguration. That day, the Director of Scientific Research gave a talk on NPR, the French NPR, and said, in this museum, we're going to review people who were immigrants in France, such as Picasso, who never became French. I had known about Picasso filing for naturalization in 1940 and being rejected after living in 40 years in France, which was very strange. 
but I, I did not know exactly why. That same day, at the inauguration, the new director of the Picasso Museum in Paris came up, and I told him about that, you know, that mention of Picasso being possibly reviewed by the Museum of Immigration. He said, I don't know anything about that museum. I don't know anything about this topic. And basically, I noticed that the field of immigration in France, historians of immigration, don't know historians of art, art historians, and vice versa. And art historians don't know historians of immigration. So I introduced these two characters, Benjamin Stora from the Museum of Immigration, a specialist of immigration history, Laurent Lebon, specialist of art history, great guy, now he's at the Centre Pompidou. They met at dinner with my husband, who's a physicist and cooked for us, Magret de Canard. And there, a few weeks later, it was decided that I would curate a show called Picasso, a foreigner in the city. Okay, so I started. And first thing I requested from the Picasso Museum, which was built and created in 1985, which means that it was 12 years after Picasso died, but it, it is a museum dedicated to him in the center of Paris in a beautiful private mansion. I'm sure that many of the people who are listening to your program, my dear Erica, have gone to this private mansion, 17th century gorgeous. But Picasso's life in France did not at all look like that for more than 50 years in the country. You know, this life was the life of someone who was stigmatized, who was rejected because he was first a foreigner, second, considered an anarchist, and third, because he was an avant-garde artist in a country which then, France then, was ruled by a very strong police, the police of foreigners, which was the most sophisticated police all over the world to track down the foreigners. They had two million files, and Picasso's file was in the center, and he was filed by the police the second year he was in France as an anarchist. Why? Why, my dear Erica? Why? Because when you immigrate, when you go somewhere, he went to France just because he was an artist and there was the place to be. And Paris was the center of the art world and Paris was the modern metropolis. It was 1900. He was 18. He had a piece in the, in the Universal Exhibition and it was extraordinary. But Paris was a country for you know, for the bourgeoisie, for the elegant people. How did he come? He comes through the back door. He came, he came through a narrow, very narrow, narrow place. He came through his network of Catalans, Catalan anarchists who had been forced to live north of Paris in a kind of slum neighborhood. And therefore, they were in the direction of the police who had informants sitting outside of Picasso's place in Montmartre just to check what they were doing. So Picasso had this extraordinary fortune because he was so talented to, to be given a show uh, at age 19. But where did he go? He went to, to the dealer. Who was the dealer? A Catalan. Why was he at the Catalan place? Because he had no other way. When you go to a foreign country where you don't know the language, where you don't know the codes, you go where your friends are. So you go to your buddies. His buddies were Catalans. He had no idea that they were just in the radar of the police. Why? Because some of them had had, had to flee Barcelona, where there had, had been anarchist events. And in France, uh, an anarchist from Italy, though, had killed the French president uh, a few years earlier. 
So basically, it was a year of, I mean, a time of terrible tensions. But Picasso came for an extraordinary event called the Universal Exhibition, which drew to Paris 50 million people, five zero. They did many, many events, especially they did, they redid the Grand Palais, the Petit Palais, the Pont Alexandre, the subways. It was extraordinary. And Picasso was living, you know, in the north, in, in a place which was far from being uh, full of light and exciting. He was in a place which, in the place where he lived a few years later, they had one tab, one, one tab for 35 studios of artists. It was extremely hot during the summer, extremely cold during the winter. But, you know, the very interesting thing about Picasso, he never complained about his situation. He never explained his situation, just like the, the Queen of England, you know, never explained, never complained. He fought. The only thing he did, he worked. And he found the ways, you know, intellectually and politically, next to his genius as an artist, he had an, an incredible political mind. He was what we call a strategist. He saw the things beforehand. You know, he understood the situations, I mean, 40 years before they happened. When he became a Cubist painter, just before World War I, when he was like Hamlet on the border of the, of the void. And he knew about Einstein and relativity. He knew about Bergson and the theory of time. He knew about aviation. He knew about cinema. He knew about literature. He knew about everything. This guy was a, a sponge. You know, he had antennas. And he really, in disentangling all the elements of traditional painting, he was able to destroy traditional figuration. That's why he represented the objects seen from different angles, you see. And it was just before old Europe collapsed with World War I. And this, this was done by this kid who, when he arrived in Paris, was, you know, was completely secure, confident about his genius. You know what he did? You know when he, he knew about his genius, Erica, you know? It was early on, wasn't it? At age 14. You know why? Because at that time, he went to the Prado. He was the son of, a, of an art teacher. He went to the Prado. He loved Velázquez and Goya and Sorbaran. But Velázquez, above all, he went in front of the portrait of Philip IV by Velázquez, and he copied it. You know, at the time, you had no reproduction in color, no reproduction at all. You just had to go. He went. We see easel and copied. And Picasso's, at age 14, of Velázquez's portrait of Philip IV is more beautiful than the original. And you can find it at the Museo Picasso in Barcelona. It is spectacular. So Picasso, deep inside, he knew that he was in constant dialogue with Velázquez. Can you imagine? And uh, so this is a kind of, of interaction which happened in Paris. But in France, the country was extremely ethnocentered, extremely arrogant. You know, it was, it was a colonial empire. I mean, it had been a colonial empire. The French were very proud of themselves. And the French president, Émile Loubet, kept saying, people came from all over the world here to admire the genius of France. I mean, Picasso didn't come to admire them. He knew about his own genius, and he was himself not like the French made of one single pure nation. No, Picasso was made of many pieces. You know, Picasso had a plurality of cultures. Picasso was born in Malaga, which is Andalusia. He went to La Coruña, which is Galicia. 
he lived in, in Barcelona, which is Catalan country, and he went to Madrid, which is Castile. So you see, Spain is a nation of nations. So he was made of four Spanish nations. When he arrived in France, this was this kind of very, very straightforward, hyper-centralized Paris, you see. And so what is extremely interesting is that Picasso mingled with whom? With other expatriates, like the poet Guillaume Apollinaire, like Gertrude Stein and Leo Stein. Other expats in France. Like um, Daniel Henry Keinweiler, the German dealer, like Wilhelm Ude, another German dealer, like Karl Einstein, another great critic from Prussia, like Vincent Kramer, an absolute fabulous collector, trained in Vienna but born in Prague, you know. He met with Alfred Stieglitz, who adored, who was also a German-born Jew who lived in New York and who adored, who gave him his first show in the United States. So there were a few French people who admired him, but mostly he was admired by other expatriates. So this is a story that was untold. And, and if you want to know why, it's because I don't come from the traditional line of art historians whom I admire a lot and who taught me a lot and whose catalog I read enormously because as Alfred Barr, director of MoMA, said in 1939, nobody has been written about more than Picasso. That was in 1939. I don't know if you can imagine what it was when I started my book in 2017. So I had to swallow all the catalogs and it was actually fascinating and I love doing that. But I come from another origin. I come from I've been trained by Americans, I come from social history, and I have been trained by a fabulous sociologist born in Montreal called Irving Goffman, with whom I studied, who does micro-sociology of everyday life. For example, Erica, if I stop looking at you in the eyes, it means that I'm bored by you. So these are the tiny details, you know, the micro thing. I am sensitive to what we call, what we call low signals. Like, for example, the fact that Picasso, at certain moments in his, so I looked at his correspondence. Do you know how many items there are in his archive? More than 200,000 items. And the first thing I asked, because I am very interested in the way a foreigner or an immigrant negotiates or discusses with his family, where he comes from, the family. So, you know, I don't know if you've ever traveled abroad. You write to your family. What do you write to your family? That's very interesting. The first categorization, the very first thing you see, the very first thing you see in a country. What was the very first thing that Picasso saw in Paris? Women in cafes. That women were alone in cafes, which was not the case in Spain. And what will happen with these women in cafes? His best friend, the one who took him to Paris, will commit suicide before a French woman, less than a year later. So basically the beginning of Picasso's career in Paris with his friend at age 18 is already mingled with a drama, which is love and death, which is in a way dramatic, but it is the way it was because, you know, there was, there was a big difference between Spanish culture and French culture, and he had to adapt. You know, so my book is full of those elements that I discovered in his correspondence. When you read the correspondence of someone, it's a way you are... Actually, you are breaking, you, you're breaking into the intimacy of someone, you see. And, and I was the first one to access the letters that his mother wrote to him. 
His mother was called Maria Piesui Gomez. She was crazy about her son. She thought he was, he was a genius. She would write to him four letters a week for more than 40 years, four zero, until he was 60. And in each single letter, she would tell him, Mi querido hijo Paolo, my dear son Paolo. In the end, she would say, Recibe tantos besos de la otra madre que tanto, tanto te quiere y nunca te olvida. Please accept many kisses from your mother who loves you enormously and would never forget you. So that she would write to him every single time for 40 years. 40 years. You know, she was overpowering. The letters are written from the margin to the left, the margin to the right, not, not any space left. It's extraordinary. You, you get, so she complains that he doesn't write enough. She complains that he changes his name. What did you drop the Ruiz? Because his full name is Pablo Ruiz Picasso. And I can tell you why. He dropped the Ruiz because Ruiz was very Spanish. And the Spanish were very, very anarchist, as seen by the French. So he wanted to be more, more invisible. And Picasso is an Italian name. That's from the mother. From Genova. And actually, I was in Genova months ago, and there were many grocery stores called Picasso. I swear to God, I swear. I swear. It's so funny. But the mother at a certain time said, But you know, Velasquez also dropped his middle name and took the name of the mother. So that's okay. Oh, heavens. Isn't it funny? Isn't it extraordinary? So, so I, I read all those letters. I'm lucky because I speak a few languages. So speaking it, Spanish helped me. And, but, you know, you have to decipher the handwriting, which is kind of complicated. So I spent weeks and weeks. And, I mean, it took me five or six years, this book, you know, to do the research. Of, and I was able to cross, to cross the data. You know, a type of archival funds where art historians usually don't go is the police archive. That's how you begin the book. You take us with you on Le Metro. Yeah. So, you know, I went to this neighborhood in Paris, far away, ugly, cold. And I said, can I see the police file of Picasso? I mean, it was devastating. Could not, could not believe that the pictures in the police file, he looked like a, a criminal, a criminal. I mean, he had the face of a criminal. You know, and he had to produce so many documents and he had to require so many things. And and nobody knew anything about it. So it was like discovering, unveiling uh, an untold story, which actually gave me much more admiration for him than I had before. Because not only he survived the ordeals of his time, you know, the ordeals of the time, the 20th century, were two world wars a Spanish civil war, a cold war. I mean, so many elements, you know, and then and then rejection and then and then rejection from two major institutions in France. One, the police, the other one, the Academy of Fine Arts. I will not say that he was mistreated by the French. He was not persecuted. No, not at all. Let's not go overboard. It was just he was just, for example, as a as an artist, he was just not in French museums, for example. His paintings were not collected by French national museums until he made a donation that was year 1947, when in the United States, Stiglitz had done a first show, Alfred Bach had showed him in the 30s, 
in 33, in 36, in 39, where he did this huge show called Picasso, 40 Years of His Art, and when he did a diagram in which Picasso seems to be at the center of all, all the art which has been created for the 40 years before. So basically, you know, before World War I, it was all the East, Eastern European empires who worshipped him because his dealer, Kainweiler, had found the Russians, the Germans, the Austro-Hungarians, you know, and so on and so on. And then it was dismantled after World War I, the old Europe. Then it went to the United States. You see, so, so Picasso had really two spaces, two territories, where he was extremely well-known and sold and even rich. He became rich. Eastern Europe before World War I and the United States in the 30s. So after that, you know, he, he becomes a little bit more visible in France, but, you know, it, it's just because he went into the Communist Party. He decided to apply to the Communist Party and to become a communist at a time. I know the, the word communist is not at all popular in the United States of America, right? Yes. But, but because at the time, the Communist Party in France had been the party of the French resistance against the Nazis. So it, it meant something completely different. They were the ones who fought in the resistance with names that they had borrowed in order to protect the French population against the Nazis. And they were the heroes after World War II. So Picasso uh, went with the Communist Party in 1944. So it was a heroic party. Most of the mayors of uh, little cities in France were communists. And de Gaulle, General de Gaulle, who became the president, had five communist ministers in his government. So it was completely their time. And Picasso became visible in France for the first time, you know. And then the little, the little museums all over France kept asking him, Camarade Picasso, Master Picasso, would you like to lend us things? And, so, and he would lend and he would give and he would donate. So France, little cities in France, became rich of Picasso's works of art thanks to his generosity. So the guy who had been stigmatized and invisible for 40 years became a generous donor and became a vector of modernization of the country long before it happened, you know. What you're telling us is that this artist, labeled an alien suspect with a police file, is transforming and pulling into the future the very country that shunned him? Yes, yes. And then, and then the story, which is extraordinary, is that in 1955, Picasso decides that he doesn't want to live in, in Paris any longer. He decides to go and live in the south of France. You know, he was a very open-minded guy. He was cheerful. He was easygoing. He was a Democrat, in other terms, as you would say in this country. And he decided to learn ceramics, to go with craftsmen. This guy who had been, you know, celebrated as, like Alfred Bardit had said when he bought Les Demoiselles d'Avignon, he said, there is no other work of art in which the genius imposes itself so strongly in any painting. Can you imagine? And it's here in the States in the Museum of Modern Art. Absolutely. So the, this genius is going to a very small village of ceramists. It's called Valoris, near Nice. And he learns ceramics from a woman, actually, a woman ceramist called Suzanne Ramier. 
and within a few months he becomes the best ceramist in the world. And there is a conference and singing, and they say, who did that? So he created things. What is extraordinary with this moment of his life is that he projected himself in the Mediterranean, where he came from, because Malaga is at the border of Spain near Morocco. Malaga in, in Arabic means the queen in Arabic. I'm from Algeria, so that's my culture. And so he, he knew about the great ceramists of classic Greece, of classic Roman times. So what he was doing was really entertaining himself with them. So Picasso became one of the great ceramists of all times. So, you know, space and time had no more boundaries for him. So down in the South, he was able to launch his fame, global fame, through the space he belonged to because it is a pluricultural space. It is a space of many cultures, the Mediterranean. That's where he belonged. So there he decided that he choose the South against the North, the region against the capital, the craftsmen against the Académie des Beaux-Arts, his buddies against the Paris establishment. When the Minister of Culture, André Malraux, brought him on a golden plate, the Legion of Honor, Picasso wrote on a piece of paper, Legion of Honor for artists without a collector, for writers without a publisher. And he said, no, thank you. He was even offered a naturalization. He said, no, thank you. I think he couldn't care less. He was a cosmopolitan artist, a global artist, an artist of all times, you know, who, whose odyssey resonates so much with what we are living today. I was talking on Friday with Harry Cooper, the senior curator at the National Gallery in Washington, D.C., in front of this extraordinary masterpiece of Picasso, 1905, the Saltimbanque. That's the family of street performers, circus folks. And you have a photo of it in your book. Exactly. I mean, life-size. And I told the crowd in front of that, I was extremely privileged to be given that space to start my, my book tour. And I said that it was in this painting, Picasso was transmitting to us the feeling that a prayer had to be misplaced or outplaced. Or, you know, the feeling you have when you go abroad and you don't know where you are, you don't know how to, to put one, f one foot in front of the other. So this is what he conveyed. And this is a painting that I discovered when your president, Mr. Trump, was building a wall on the Mexican border. So that's when I discovered this painting. And for me, I thought that Picasso was leading the resistance against Trump, you know? This man who was a foreigner, who was not particularly well treated, who never complained, but who fought and who found a way because he had an agency. Everybody, he changed the world. And that's why we have to be, to be extraordinarily attentive to his work and to him as a model today. You're speaking with real passion here. I, I have let my feelings get out in the book. You know, when you start writing at age 20, you're much more you're much more locked. You say, I used to write, we think that, and so on. But the more I grow up, and the more I let my own feelings get out, and my, my heart talk, and, my, and I, my anger was able to express itself, and I think it can be a compass for us all.
you have a wonderful way of ending, and it does have to do with that sense of not either or. The, yes, yes. The, you know, there's a word in France, there's a word in France which is derogatory, which is metek, which is like slang. It's ugly. It's terribly ugly. So Picasso was treated as a metek by the French who loved, some people, loved the purity of the nation, you know. And this metek who steal our work, you know, and and don't give us anything back. But the origin of the word is Greek, metoikos, and it comes from a, a foreigner who has come into a country and decided to stay. So the, the metoikos is neither a foreigner nor a citizen. It, he's in between. And I found a plate that Picasso as a ceramist made. It's called the plate with three faces. And I see a face to the right, smiling, that of the foreigner, a face to the left, not really smiling, that of the citizen, and a face in the center with a big smile and the face of the metoikos. So I think that in this plate, and it's in the book at the very last page next to my last words, Picasso described the society to which he belongs, the united society, neither out nor inside, but everything. And that's exactly the color line of W.E.B. Du Bois, who came to Paris also at the Universal Exhibition, just as Picasso, and who completely invented his concept of color line at the moment of the Universal Exhibition. So both of them were born out of that moment, which was not specifically nice, but they did wonders, wonders out of it. Annie cohen Solau a writer and social historian, distinguished professor at Bocconi University in Milan. Her books include biographies of Jean-Paul Sartre, Leo Castelli, and Mark Rothko, all of which have been widely translated, and most recently, Picasso, The Foreigner, published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, translated by Sam Taylor. Annie cohen returned to the University of Scranton on March 28th at the start of her book tour for Picasso the Foreigner. Her tour coincides with the 50th anniversary of Picasso's death on April 8th, 1973. She spoke at the Schemmel Forum, where she's appeared a number of times, invited by Sandra Myers, who's been Senior Fellow for International Civic and Cultural Projects and Director of the Schemmel Forum at the University for many years. Annie cohen Salal paid a visit to the WVIA studios to talk with us about Picasso the Foreigner as the art world marks this notable anniversary. For more information, the book is titled simply Picasso the Foreigner, no comma, and that's telling too. Picasso the Foreigner and online fsgbooks.com fsgbooks.com and her own website, AnnieCohenSolal.com. So it's A-N-N-I-E-C-O-H-E-N-S-O-L-A-L.com. AnnieCohenSolal.com.